Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Okay, listeners, I know we're all adjusting to a new reality right now, and I hope you all are staying safe or rather staying inside like we are here in Los Angeles. For instance, I'm recording this intro on my phone inside my bedroom closet because that's pretty much the only place that's quiet right now with homeschooling and two dogs. Anyway, I'm thinking of you all out there. And of course, part of this new reality is being able to entertain ourselves at home. So we're going to try and do our best to continue to bring you new episodes. And I'm glad to say that today's episode is with Nick Kroll. Could we ask for a better company at this moment? He's so smart, so thoughtful, and so funny. He's one of my favorite humans out there. We're going to reflect back on how he got his start, his success with Kroll Show, his huge hit with the animated series Big Mouth, which is streaming now on Netflix, and his new show coming soon, Human Resources. We're also going to talk about vulnerability and why having regrets is scarier than rejection, and also dealing with the feelings of failure amid all your success. So settle in wherever you are. This is Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll, my my Brad Pitt in the house, <laughs> finally now in the uh, in the chair, ready to talk to me about life and everything else and coronavirus, which is basically hitting us like a tsunami today, right? Yeah, it feels like something changed yesterday, um, and uh, it really it was such a so weird. I mean, I'm happy. I'm this will come out at some other point, right? Yeah. yeah. So we can acknowledge that we are recording this. In the middle of March. Yeah, right after the NBA's suspended games and right after Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump has coronavirus, which yes. is, I think, I was so cynical and I am I can be skeptical, I think, is a better word than cynical mm-hmm. to describe myself. But I had said earlier, until someone super famous gets it, no one's going to really understand. Yeah. And I was thinking more of like the female famous and it's, but basically Tom Hanks is a well, bullseye. Well, it, it's Tom, Tom Hanks and it's sort of, Perfect as always, Tom Hanks perfectly cast as a not. I mean, he's I think a very he seems to be a very healthy guy, but a, not a young man. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about it too of like America's dad mm-hmm. is gets coronavirus, and I think a lot of people right now are like scared about what's happening to them, but really they're scared about their parents. And so as always, Tom Hanks perfectly perfectly cast and tone. Uh, I mean, that tweet was so great, or in, you know how well he it's rec- been. In, yeah, it was very much like. You know, this we're sick and we're going to be okay. And like in a nice way, I think trying to assuage people's panic versions of this, you know. But it also really did all of a sudden like yesterday was some sort of weird tipping point. Wednesday it was like NBA Rudy Gobert, the NBA uh, center who mm-hmm. very brashly the day a couple days before had been touching a bunch of reporters, recorders, so French. Be like, oh, is everyone so worried about blah 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 touch you know? And then it's like. There we go. And I did a show last night at Largo 
and I think they they have shut down Largo to, as of today for a little while and mm-hmm. UCB like I was supposed to be going on tour to do a bunch of shows this spring over the next couple months and and those are obviously starting to get canceled and going away. It's just I've never experienced anything like this in my life. None of us have. I mean, that's we're really going in blind. And uh, that's the thing I think that's unnerving everybody. No tests. No one can get a hold of tests at this point. I mean, hopefully that'll all change yeah. quickly. But, yeah, I mean, on the scale of neurotic New Yorker mm-hmm. that you are because you were raised in New York. Yeah. Are you neurotic or is the West Coast kind of like tempered that? I, you know, I was never too neurotic. I was never much of a, I was never much of a, I think I've been, I've been blessed, knock on wood, with a pretty healthy constitution. So like germs and things like that have never been terribly scary to me. I don't, I'm not neurotic. Like I'm not a very overly anxious person, but I am a, but as I've gotten older, the more I've prepared for anything, whether it's. Something like this stuff, like about a week ago, I was like, oh, I need to go get supplies and stuff like that. But I'm not a I'm not a super anxious. I'm not a catastrophic thinker at all. The West Coast may have. No, I never was. Uh, So what about you? Um, I've gotten a healthy dose of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have the oh my god someone's sick. I don't have that kind of neuroses, but I do. I do have a little doomsday in mm-hmm. me sometimes. I think you know we grew up with a bomb shelter and mm-hmm. you know where'd you grow up in Colorado? Okay, yeah, I, I, we. I um, I don't. I didn't grow. I mean, I grew up you know aware of what was going on around the world and conscious of it and trying to plan for things, but not this. So this feels. This is like I was saying that like I feel like. In a weird way, my, like, super anxious OCD friends, there's, like, a certain calm that has come over them uh, at this moment because what they have always planned for and thought was happening is happening. Right. And there's, like, a, a calmness with, like, being like, oh, I'm not crazy. They've been validated. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, like, and I think that's what's scaring so much of the world now is, like, the majority of people who haven't thought like that are all of a sudden getting a glimpse into what it's like to be a deeply anxious OCD person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe an OCD might not be the right qualification, right. but someone who's filled with anxiety and prone to catastrophic thinking. Mm-hmm. And it feels different than – it feels somewhat a bit of a reminder of what it felt like around 9-11 where it's like something major is happening and it feels like it's this collective experience that we're all going through. But in 9-11, it was just – it felt bad and scary, but it didn't feel like we were personally culpable for anything. What feels weird right now, I think, is the onus that we feel of either I can contract this or I can spread this, that it's an incoming and an outgoing. And I think that that's a very weird um, feeling to have. And I think it's a weird feeling of like – intimacy that like we're like all right we're not supposed to shake hands we're not supposed to touch but then like with your loved ones are you not supposed to like like i bet there's a lot less fucking going on right now mm-hmm. you know what i mean like if people are like ah, i love you <laughs> but I, i'm not letting that in or like you know? nine months from now there's not going to be a birth boom at all i yeah. don't think it's a birth yeah. boom moment <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah i know exactly what i mean um, I love a lot of things about you. It's hard to pinpoint all of them. But one of the things that I am most in awe of is your ability 
your observation abilities to distill characteristics mm. in it's like a funnel and you just put them all in this giant funnel and then it just like drips down into this pure kind of character that you get to exploit everything that you've seen and like send up whether it's reality television or send up the douchebags mm. or change up these kind of archetypes in society mm-hmm. you bring all these nuances to mm-hmm. it because it isn't just a caricature you know these characters really live the ones that you've created really throughout your career and even on on the show Big Mouth. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about that a little bit, Mm -hmm. where that comes from. Is that a, was that just you always as a kid observing everybody? Is that from, were your parents those types of people? How How do you see that stuff and know it's funny or know you can make that funny? I think it's maybe changed and evolved over the years. I'm the youngest of four uh, I have a pretty funny family. I have a both of my parents. I think are are pretty strong observers of of uh, character and personality. I think I learned a lot. Just and I think there's something about. I'm very focused right now in stand up. I'm very interested in, in birth order and mm. being the youngest. I'm the youngest of four. And, I'm the youngest. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I feel like when you're the youngest, you're always around people. You're oh, you're always playing a little bit of catch up because you're like trying to keep up. Like your siblings are riding bikes, so you're trying to figure out how to ride a bike quicker so you can keep up. You know, which means you then also you 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 speed through a lot of things, and and I think you benefit tremendously from the amount of people you're around and interacting with at a mm-hmm. younger age. And I think it it gave me more opportunities to observe like uh, people and and interact. It's weird because I don't I don't think of myself. I mean, I think of myself as a, as a, as observant of people, but I also simultaneously don't think of myself as someone who's removed from people. Like I think there are people who are great observers, but they're not necessarily in the water with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to be at the party. Mm-hmm. Like I like to watch the party, mm-hmm. but I like to be at the party and in it. And I think that that's just been how I've navigated the world. And I think that has allowed me also to what I've slowly tried to figure out is like my girlfriend was saying, like, we were, we went to a bunch of weddings this summer and I get really annoyed with people at weddings um, by their behavior. And she was like, you're the behavior police. <laughs> like she's like, you know, like I'm like, you know, people drunk and talking during some someone's toast. And I'm like, shut up. Like, this is their toast. Like, this is their moment to talk about their son or their best mm-hmm. friend. And even if the toast isn't perfect, like, let them have it. Like, because this is their – this is a big moment for them. Most pe- I, And I think a lot of people aren't really thinking so, – not everybody. Anyway, so she was like – she was sort of like, oh, your characters are sort of like – the behavior police, like, writ large, where you're like, hey, you're a douchebag, and I'm going to play this character to show you how you act to the world. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, oh, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But I also think inside of that, like, as I've gotten older, as opposed to being like, here's my observation of this person, which is, you know, not necessarily always a positive representation of them, I also think I've tried to... Um, infuse it with some level of empathy being like okay well this guy's a douchebag but why is he douchebag what what's behind that like oh he's got a fractured relationship with his father mm-hmm. so that's how he's ended up in this moment and then i think you can both kind of make fun of these people but also have empathy for who they are and hopefully create like a well-rounded character that speaks to what real people are like cuz very rarely are real people just like 100% one thing for no good reason mhm 
I still I still miss some of your characters from the Kroll show. Yeah. You know, publicity and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> number yeah. one among them. I talked to uh, Jenny Slate was on mm. uh, earlier this year. She's like, you always did love that. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that was the world I had to well, be you in. Well, were, you were crawling in it. Yeah. Well, yeah. but it's, you know, and it's like publicity, or, it is obviously a publicist, but it's really a specific kind of woman, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and we sort of, t- I've taken a, some of those characters and some of those kinds of people and now brought them into Big Mouth. Mm-hmm. So, like, if if you watch Big Mouth but you didn't necessarily watch Kroll Show uh, or vice versa, you know, publicity, me and Jenny Slate, mm-hmm. the character that I played, Liz, is vocally uh, in certain ways very similar to Lola on Big Mouth, um, who might have been, like, what Liz was like when she was a girl. Um and it's been very fun on on Big Mouth to like have a sort of very arch character of Lola who started off the show as like a big girl and kind of a sassy girl. And then we slowly have discovered all of these things about where she comes from and how she is who she is. And and like now she's, you know, one of my favorite. She's always been one of my favorite characters, but she's I think people have kind of been drawn into her because of the complexity that the way we're telling those stories allows us to do. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what makes Big Mouth so good and effective. I mean, I'm sad, though, because I wonder – I'm not sad, but I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you this question. It, it's obviously an adult series about puberty, mm-hmm. and you can't believe how much of the stuff in my ripe old age that I remember when I'm watching mm. the show mm-hmm. and the le- the le- the layers of divorce, the drunk parent, mm-hmm. the gym teacher, mm-hmm. the best friends fighting, mm-hmm. the the you know every little scenario minus the hormone monster characters, which are just pure genius. Mm-hmm. You can relate to. At what age do you think it's appropriate for teenagers to watch it? Um, well. My my partner, Andrew Goldberg, one of my partners on the show, was asked that question. He's got kids who are like, I think they're like six and nine now, mm. um, seven and ten-ish. He said, I, I'm going to let my kids watch the show when they are the age of the kids in the show. So like 12, 13 years old, like as I always say, the show is super dirty. It's it's pretty raunchy. There's very, very adult things said and themes explored. But I would also say that if you have kids and they're about 12 or 13 years old, they on the Internet have access to everything that we are saying and talking about and showing in ways that are much less responsibly sent out into the world. Like we're very conscious of what we're saying and what we're doing and the messages that are being put out there. We also also have a, a motto in the room, which is big mouth gives zero fucks. You know, it's like we are going to push as far as we can push because it's because we have this opportunity to to say and do really anything because we're on like a service like Netflix, which allows us to really g- push the limits of it. And so certain, you know, you might have a 12 year old that's truly not ready to watch the show and like then let them wait until you you guys have had the conversations to talk about it. But I will say it is naive to think that your kids can't get on the Internet and see all of this stuff with <laughs> like, you know, like kids could go watch beheading videos. They can watch wildly graphic pornography by clicking a button that says I'm 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think that you've got like your parental parameters on their computer, I guarantee your kids are 
better at navigating your computer and your and their phones than you are. So that's not me advocating saying like make sure to let your kids watch the show, but I'm just like let's be honest about like what kids have access to right now. And I would say what the other feedback that we get a lot is that there are parents who parents and kids who have come up to us and said like we my kids are watching the show, we don't necessarily watch it together or whatever, but we in watching it it sparks some conversations for us that we really needed to have or or the show is teaching kids lessons or not I, I don't like to say that we teach lessons, but that it's exploring things that we're not comfortable teaching our kids or that school is not addressing. And inside of that there are things and and maybe kids are talking to each other or their teachers or you know, their parents or their siblings about it, that it's sparking conversations that are need to be had and that are very real. Because the things that we're talking about are the things that are happening to kids and the, that kids are thinking about. And our goal is to make kids feel not so alone as they go through it. Now, when I say kids, I'm saying like 13, 12, yeah. 13, kids who are like, I don't know, if your nine-year-old wants to, like, I don't know, like, I'm not. I have an eighth grader. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, can he watch this? Can he not watch this? But I, but I felt like, you know what, I... It's not lessons in it, but I think what's so effective about the show is you really give the 360 on it. It's not just going for the laugh, although the laughs are really funny, but uh, it, it gives a whole view of it. That's it. I just feel like puberty is such a scary, lonely, and shame-filled time in one's life that to lift the veil a little bit is, is, is useful. Um, and maybe your kid hit puberty hard in sixth grade and has been like masturbating a ton or is hit puberty but doesn't know what to do with it and has hair in places and all those things or is emotionally explosive or whatever. Or maybe your kid is a late bloomer like I was and had no pubic hair and no sexual, like strong sexual desires really until I got to high school. Um, But I was watching what was happening to all my friends and was feeling self-conscious and alone and tortured in my own way by seeing everything going on that I wasn't privy to except as an observer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we're, we're, we're exploring it all. It's also, you know, because it's also about these kids going through puberty, but it's really also about human sexuality. Um, It really takes hold during puberty, but it's stuff that like, part of the reason I was doing interested in doing the show was, you know, I, I go to therapy and I'm, and I'm in therapy and I'm talking about things that are happening in my life now, but they're deeply affected by the things that were happening to me at puberty. Like who we are as sexual beings in, in our forties or thirties or twenties or fifties, sixties, it's so much of that is formed by what was happening to us in middle school. Um, or whenever we hit puberty high Mm -hmm. school that like they're, they're, they're hugely formative experiences and oftentimes not the most positive ones. And so to look at that, for me personally, to look at that, to examine it, to try to understand it so that I could move through some of that stuff was very important and, and has been incredibly helpful in trying to understand myself now as a man through the lens of who I was as a 13-year-old. But that stuff is still there. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics of it because you guys are so prolific. Mm-hmm. And I remember my son, a huge Simpsons fan, mm-hmm. told me that it takes nine months to make an animated show. Well, yeah. For us, it's longer. So I mean, how, how do you, what is your writer 
<laughs> I mean, without getting too in the weeds, but for sure. you guys, like, it feels, it doesn't, how long have you been doing this? Two well, years? Well, so we, so no, we've been, so this show, three seasons have aired. We are always well ahead of wherever we are, like, whatever is airing, we are well over a year ahead of that in preparing the next season. The easiest example, because we're, we're and we're on a constant rolling schedule, so even when we're down, we are writing. But for us to to complete a season, we need to be able we need to be about a year and a half ahead of it. So we were writing seasons well ahead of what was being announced or what was happening. We still are. So like. Season four, which will come out in the fall, is basically almost completely done. Like the the quickest turnaround we had was we wrote the Valentine's Day episode, which aired between seasons two and three. That we were writing and delivered about and and and, and it aired about a year, and that was rushing wow. through it. Wow. So we're well over nine months because it also is like so. The, just a quick breakdown of how it happens is like right now we're breaking. You know, we're writing season five right now. But the way it works in general is we have our writer's room, incredibly funny group of people. We all sit around and talk. What are the things we want to talk about? What are the both what are the stories that we want to tell for our characters and kids? And also what are the bigger themes about, you know, uh, uh, puberty and being a teen? Uh, what are those subject matters? And then we sort of, you know, figure out the puzzle of putting what with that. Then we break our stories and send our writers off to write stuff. Um, we slowly start to get scripts in. As we get those scripts in, we then immediately voice them. A, a number of months after that, once we have a radio play, which is like the the just the vocal version of a, of an episode, then we give that to our artists and animators, and they come back with an animatic, which is like a rough draft, black and white, not fully fully realized, but you can watch it and see what the episode's going to look like. We screen that. We do a rewrite on that screening. Then that gets sent off to Korea for six months or more uh, to for it to be drawn and colored fully. You know, the that comes back. We screen that. Then we do a rewrite based on that. And then we do the finishing touches largely here in L.A. or, you know, we're Titmouse, who's our, 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 our studio that we work with on the show. And all in, it takes... You know, it takes about, I think it's a 72-week schedule. Yeah, that's amazing. It's about a year and a half. So we are well, well, well ahead of anything mm-hmm. that's airing or that anybody knows about. Mm-hmm. So, like, by the time, what's crazy is by the time a season airs, we have already completed the basic workings of the following season which is kind of cool because it means that we are following what our concept is for the season and characters versus what the incoming reactions we're getting right. from, which I think is largely good. It means we're not chasing our audience. Right. Uh, well, the musical numbers are fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I have read that the human resources, right? This was mm-hmm. leaked or read or announced. Yeah. I don't know. I, we announced I, it. We announced, announced it. Good. Yeah. It's like I read it a couple yeah. places, uh, which is going to be just based on the monster characters. Yeah. So so in the end of season two, uh, a couple of our kids go up to where the monsters work, the hormone monsters, Maury uh, and Connie, uh, voiced by me and, and Maya Rudolph. And, oh, my God. Um, it's, can we just have a moment for Maya Rudolph? Just a moment. I want more. I, want, I mean, I, mean, I, I want more God. than a moment. I mean, I, 
I have she, to say, well, I saw when I saw it after yeah. the Oscars, I was like, you're the you're the most talented. You're Correct. the you are the funniest. You are the most talented. And that she's on the show because originally we cast her to play my mom on the show, which she still does, Diane. But and then all of a sudden we were writing the second episode of this show and we were writing for Jesse, uh, voiced by Jesse mm-hmm. Klein, gets her period. And we were I mean, to be honest, this is what four or five years means is like, oh, right. The girls need a hormone monstrous, too. Like, that's how even our little like very th- trying to be thoughtful show. Right. We were like, oh, right. This is happening to girls. <laughs> so all of a sudden we were like, well, who should we get to be the hormone monstrous? And we're like, well, let's see. We've got Maya Rudolph, singularly the most talented, funny person. So she took that on and has been amazing and voices all different little snippets of character as well. So we went up to the hormone monstrous and monsters where they work in the department of puberty and the department of puberty lives inside of human resources, which is like the, this, you know, kind of world where all of the governing bodies of emotions and Mm -hmm. the various elements that go into human existence are. And so we thought, that would be a really interesting world to explore and but also kind of just to do a workplace comedy like people love workplace comedies they love parks and rec they love the office they love cheers like all these things that are very just formats for a great show so we were like let's a workplace comedy sounds great but really also this to explore the world of the monsters and creatures so you know, we've introduced the shame wizard and we've introduced depression kitties and um, the DNA ape and <laughs> all of these other things mm-hmm. that are we think are like philosophically really interesting to explore. Like what. So whereas Big Mouth is really this chance to explore kids in puberty, human resources becomes this opportunity to not only explore workplace comedy, but also explore the other elements of human existence like birth and death and divorce and marriage and uh, sickness and, I mean, everything that you can think of. So it it opened it up for us to just to not just have to not just focus on uh, puberty and 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 sexual development. Mm-hmm. So and we'll have new characters. We'll have some of the characters that are have been involved in in Big Mouth, and and we'll bring in new characters and performers and and build it out into its whole. Hopefully, it's you know its own universe and space. Mm-hmm. Do you miss being on camera? Sometimes, uh, I mean, I I pop in and out now, mm-hmm. like, but really, the last number of years has been spent building this show and. And this world and and developing other stuff. I do. I mean, when I have acted in the last few years, it's really fun. And I remember I'm like, oh, right. Like, I I like doing this. Mm -hmm. This is like, you know, I got to do like Curb, Your Enthusiasm. I've done a couple episodes of what we do in the shadows on um, Jermaine and Taika and those guys show on on FX, a vampire show. Or Mm -hmm. uh, did a little piece on quick thing on high maintenance and... And that stuff is really fun, but I don't miss, like, 5 a.m. call times. I don't miss not knowing what my week is going to be. I don't miss being in on location in weird places removed from, like, my, you know, girlfriend or family or whatever. Um, but I do, like, love acting and performing, and I don't believe I'm done with it, but I do believe now that I've 
built like this show uh, with friends and really found it incredibly gratifying and we'll build another show and, and and building helping other people build some other shows and movies as a producer and writer that I really enjoy that element and if I'm going to act like I it has to be something that really is special and speaks to me in a in a in a way that or just thinks I think it's going to be super fun and mm-hmm. ridiculous and is with friends or whatever you know mm-hmm. I want to take it back a little bit when you went to Georgetown, obviously, mm-hmm. and you've said because your dad was – you've always been a little bit quick to admit that you weren't a driven student. Is that the accurate way to say it? Mm-hmm. Like you ended up at Georgetown mm-hmm. through various connections, let's yeah. say it, but that comedy has been truly your own. Mm-hmm. That has been your thing that mm-hmm. you have done yourself. Mm-hmm. And you've died on the vine yourself and you've been successful. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're successful now, but it wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about those early failures when you were trying to do stand-up or do mm. the improv show in college, mm-hmm. kind of when it really counted when the stakes were a little bit higher mm-hmm. than in, in middle school and high school in a way. Yeah. And that I, early time in New York. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, I was, was talking to a couple friends about it recently and it's like, What's weird I have found with success and failure is like it feels no matter what scale or what like what level you're playing at, it kind of still all feels the same on some mm-hmm. level where it's like, you know, I did a talent show with Andrew Goldberg in seventh grade where we played we hosted the talent show as Wayne and Garth. And it like <laughs> went, you know, from Wayne's World. Yeah, and, of it, course. Like, and it felt yeah. and it and it went great. And that was really fun. That felt like, you know, killing at a at a huge 15,000 seat on odd, oddball tour with, you know, like some of the biggest comedians in the world like three, four or five years ago. It's a similar feeling to be in your middle school or at a campfire at camp and kill and have everyone at camp think you're funny, feel similar then to like walk down the street and have strangers be like, you're funny. It's a similar feeling simultaneously then like auditioning to be in Fiddler on the Roof two years ago at my synagogue and getting cast as like the rabbi in a synagogue (laughs) production of Fiddler on the Roof and having two lines in a play and not getting the the one of the three leads is a similar feeling to auditioning for an, an incredible movie with you know, an incredible cast of people and not getting it. Or in a weird way, it's a similar feeling of like, I've succeeded, Mm -hmm. I'm worth something, I've been rejected, I'm no good. So I have found those weirdly to be similar. The scale changes, but it's a similar ultimate feeling because you're you're carrying your own self through these, through all these things. So, but I mean, starting out, you know, we did a lot of improv shows in college. I did stand up once. The first time I ever performed, I bombed. Mike Birbiglia was in the same competition. He won. He then cast me in the improv group the next a sketch show later that year. And I remember walking in and doing the a read through of that that sketch show and walking out of like a you know a, someone's dorm at Georgetown and being like really feeling for one of the few times in my life being like one of those aha moments of like oh this is what I'm supposed to do like reading mm-hmm. sketches and being playing characters and making these crazy choices like this is this is this felt like one of the few times where I was like oh this feels like it and I spent the next three years at Georgetown really doing a ton of improv hosting every show I could acapella fest whatever starting to make little videos and a lot of those shows didn't go well a lot of them some of them went well whatever 
and then moving to New York and starting to do improv there and taking classes at UCB and then starting to do open mics and bombing in front of five people and, you know, sharing the literally sharing a open mic with people like Chelsea Peretti and Jesse Klein, who I'm friends with to this mm-hmm. day and work with constantly to truly insane 60 year old men who are li- living with their moms. So it's like you're in these spaces and like everyone's like trying to survive in that space. Everyone's trying to make those five people laugh. Going on like commercial auditions, like, you know, I probably went on like a hundred commercial auditions before I booked my first commercial, like a FedEx commercial during the Orange Bowl or uh, started booking voiceover, radio voiceovers early. And that's really started how I started to earn my living was like Burger King, Molson, Mm -hmm. whatever, Budweiser, whatever it was, little commercials that you'd hear on the radio of like, Mm -hmm. hey, man, you want to get a beer night? Yeah, I can't, but the girl's in town, whatever it is. Um, (laughs) And then... Through that, like not trying to audition for trying to get into the Aspen Comedy Festival, trying to get into Montreal Comedy Festival, because this was at a point before YouTube and podcasts and Twitter and Instagram had had it so that everyone could see who you were, no matter where you were from or what you were doing. There was still this is a moment where there's still gatekeepers. Like if you didn't get into the Montreal Comedy Festival or the Aspen Comedy Festival, managers were not going to see you. Casting directors were not going to really see you. Development executives were not going to see you. You really had to get yourself into those situations or you had to try to make sure that one of those people would come to your show at UCB or at the at Rafifi, this little black box mm-hmm. theater in New York when we were all starting. So all of those elements were just – there were various barriers to entry. And again, this is all as I've tried to be – as honest and straightforward because the internet reveals all, although the internet's not always accurate. Mm-hmm. I always had the privilege of knowing that if things didn't work out for me, that I was going to be okay because of like the connections and privilege that my family afforded me. But I knew that if I was going to succeed in the place that I wanted to do it, that it was going to be dependent on my abilities, no matter who, where I came from. You know, it was like if I I had to make an audience laugh or a casting director laugh or a director laugh to get that job, no matter where I came from, Mm -hmm. Um, which has been the great joy of all of it is being like you you really laughter or or whatever it is you do or like being an an actor or writer. It's like, I don't know, it doesn't matter who you are unless something is funny, it's not going to work, you know? And I think it's like, you know, my little philosophy has always been that, like, rejection, re- regret was always a lot scarier to me than rejection. Like, I never wanted to look back and be like, I didn't take that shot. I didn't, I didn't, I got scared of being rejected. And so I I didn't try to do the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And at every stage, there have been incredible victories and incredible failures, you know. And some of those failures are completely imagined. But it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, you you know, it's like I have this really, I've been blessed with this, like, really successful show, animated show that people really critically has worked and, and seems to have a, a, as a broad audience, which is, like, the dream. Huge. Mm-hmm. That is really nice. And you, and then, like, you go to the Emmys or the, and, you know, and, you know, and you lose the Simpsons and, like, you're like... So I'm not allowing myself to feel like in those moments like, fuck, we're not as good as like, you know, it's just like to be to be included in those kinds of things is great, you know, and and but also I'm a competitive person, an ambitious person and I want to win things and I want to 
succeed on levels like you know um i look back at kroll show and was like i love that show i love what we did and yet i still felt like it was a failure because it wasn't in certain regards i don't feel like it was a failure but it wasn't as like big as schumer's show or key and peel's show at the time two other sketch shows on the same network and to me that felt like i was somehow failing Mm. which sucks to to think that I had a show on the air for three years with my name on it and that because it wasn't as big as these other shows and on a on a broad cultural scale that it somehow wasn't, you know, a success. But just getting a show made is a success. Getting a show yeah. on the air is a success. Making a show with your friends exactly how you want it is a success. But so it's constantly trying to navigate, like, where your priorities are. I found from my purview mm-hmm. that you know, there's a lot of um, discontent in the world of comedy, that the highs never outweigh Mm -hmm. the impact of the lows. Sure. Totally. Well, it's like you read, if you're reading Twitter, like you're reading comments from people, you can, I, I haven't, you know, I I don't search my name without, like, I just only look at, like, what's incoming for my own mental well-being. And, you know, the numbers, let's say it's like, 50 people could be like, you're so funny. And then one person's like, you're a hack or you only got this because of like who your parents are. That's what I that's what I focus on. Mm -hmm. I try not to. Mm -hmm. What I find in all of this is and I'm sure in in talking to your all the people you talk to and, and also being who you are, that like to be successful, you have to be hard on yourself. Like you have to be. You have to want more or else you'd be content and you wouldn't continue to strive mm-hmm. to do more. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's a very weird how do you how do you pick the things? How do you how do you pick up some of the, the discontent that will motivate you to be better and make better things while not picking up so much that you're miserable while you're doing it? You're already failing before you're beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's because you're like and it's and that's what I'm constantly trying mm-hmm. to navigate. Well, I think generationally in comedy, it's interesting to look at, too, because you talk about the world before Twitter exploded or Instagram exploded, like the Aspen Comedy Festival, this stuff that was huge in your world. But you guys were all, it it seems to me on the outside, you had a collective group, like you were all in it together. Yeah. And you still work with those people, which is is unique. I mean, Jenny Slate and you guys met, Chelsea Pretty, just exactly what mm-hmm. you're saying, John Mulaney. Like, you guys mm-hmm. have known each other for years. And the fact that you're now still working 20 years later together, creating great stuff, mm. is interesting. And then on the other side, Hassan Minaj, who I talked to, mm-hmm. who's, I think— seven years younger than you. He's still in his early 30s. Mm-hmm. He talks about a world where it's, oh, it's everywhere because it's Instagram and the internet and mm-hmm. Twitter and podcasts. Mm-hmm. So it's, his experience is totally different. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, I think weirdly where I start, you know, I graduated college and moved to New York and my New Year's resolution in 2002, post 9-11, right after 9-11, was to go do an open mic. So that's, I started in New York right after 9-11. And the, my little mini generation is the last mini generation that came up before the internet mm-hmm. fully took hold, before YouTube and all that stuff. So I exist in a, both worlds, but I also was still just getting going when all that stuff started happening. So it's not completely foreign to me, obviously. But I, I think that Comedy now, you know, I think it was more competitive in a weird way at that Aspen Montreal because there were only so many slots. But now, as as what you're talking about with Hassan and 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 people younger, and also us, is that the internet 
YouTube, podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff democratized comedy in a way that, like, if you write funny tweets, they're going to get retweeted and you're going to get found and you're going to get some gigs. If you make funny videos on Instagram with your a character, those characters will get spread around and they'll get seen. If you If you have a YouTube show, whatever, like, all of those things, but also podcasts, like... It used to be stand-ups were stand-ups and improvisers and sketch people were in those worlds. And there the two shall meet. I mean, they did, but mm-hmm. not as much. But I think what's changed in a real way is that stand-ups now understand that they don't have to be lone wolves out in the world, that they can do a podcast with their friend and three or four people, and they're always in touch with each other, and they're doing this stuff together. I go on your podcast, you come on mine, da-da-da-da, we go on tour together, we do these things together, we're building these things. Like, I think it's become a much more collaborative, um, democratized space, and I think that that's great. Mm-hmm. I also think that it used to be like you if you you know when I started it was like you got SNL you got the Daily Show you've got a writing job on one of the three late night shows and if you don't get any of those you're hoping that you can get on a TV show or like you know as an actor or whatever but now it's like people don't care they don't need you don't need those shows people are making more money doing their podcast than they would ever make and have bigger audiences and exposure than they would on any of those shows as writers or performers. Mm-hmm. So it, it I think, it opened up – it just opened everything up in a way that has allowed people to, to make their path with the people they want to make it with and have a lot more freedom inside of it. Mm-hmm. Even though every – look, everybody's still I'd, – I'd say if you talk to most like people doing a podcast or doing a thing, they'd be like, would, do you want to be on – Saturday Live, or did you do you want to be a movie star? You want your own TV show? People be like, yeah, I got it down. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, it's also with comedy and and social commentary. I mean, what happens? The news cycle so fast now that you you have to make that joke right away because yeah. if you're going on stage that night, everyone's already it's already been played out. Yeah, it's such well, a that's what's so smart about I think about John Oliver's show. Like as he developed it out of the Daily Show, it was like, well, everybody can t- make their joke about what's happening current events wise that day i'm gonna go do a deep dive research wise in a way that can't and hostin's doing it Mm -hmm. you know on 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 his show like in a way that it it can't you can't do that on twitter you can't just write a quick joke like what they're doing is so so deep of a dive in in research that it requires a staff to to actually do and 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 that's i think always what we're all trying to do or some of us are like, where can we find the thing that, where's the pocket that hasn't been filled yet? How can I do something that people don't have access to right now? At least that's how I look at it. Mm-hmm. So other than washing your hands a lot, mm-hmm. what are our other goals for, for 2020? Mm. Um, do you have any? I, I mean, I'm, I mean, there are personal goals and there's, um, there's, I'm, I've been doing a stand-up tour, uh, middle-aged boy, uh, that I was doing last second half of last year and toured all over a bunch of the country and, and internationally a bit. And I was about to announce, was doing, about to announce a bunch more shows this spring and summer. I will continue to do that tour. I just don't know what the timeline will be mm-hmm. right as of right now because of what's going on. Um, so at some point I will continue to tour uh, that and and fine tune it and and turn it into something hopefully worthy of of shooting as a special then uh 
and inside of that, that's part of a larger goal within Big Mouth and 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 the special or this you know this tour is like um, <laughs> the goal of being a little more like a vulnerable uh, as a human being as an artist uh, trying to be just to be like Brene Brown who was a big influence on on the Shame Wizard on Big Mouth talks a lot about shame but also about vulnerability and how courageous uh, it is to be vulnerable I'm not trying to do it for to be courageous, uh, but I'm trying to, to be a better artist. And I think like to do that, I want to try to, I'm trying to be more honest about who I am and not always hide behind the characters that I've done and try to, you know, be, be revelatory of who I am uh, in a, in, in hopes of connecting and making something that feels relatable to people. So on a grander scale, Cool. I'm working on that. I'm 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 also helping some other. We're developing human resources as a show mm-hmm. that'll get going. Uh, I'm also developing other shows and and movies for m- maybe myself, but other people helping move a couple a lot of things down the line. I, I'm gonna I, I'm hoping to grow out my business as like a producer and and help others try to create their big mouth or their whatever their show is or mm-hmm. their movie is. Um, I just really like helping make things, being a part of it from the inception. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure, like, you know, there's some acting stuff along the way, and I'd like to find a – I'd love to go do a, a really cool show or movie and that I don't have to be responsible for beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that that's – there's something incredibly gratifying about making something myself and being a part of it, but also it's nice to, like – go and be in people's stuff and not have to be responsible for pre-production, production, and post-production. Well, I'd love to see you and Brad Pitt on screen together. That'd be like my dream. I mean, he's we we had a part for him on Big Mouth that he was interested in and then could, he was like, I can't do this one, but we had a very funny part for him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Brad, uh, we've, you know, He's so, I mean, he is so. He's so funny. He's so funny and smart and a joy to watch. Like, it was really fun watching him, obviously, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but then also watching him on the circuit. You know, he's so funny and charming and smart. And yeah, I mean, you know, Brad wants to do something. (laughs) Um, But it's it's really like, I don't know. It's like, I'm so, you know, it's so interesting right now with coronavirus. It's just such a crazy moment where it's Mm -hmm. like, our people are shutting stuff down. Productions are stopping. And yet people are going to be in their homes a lot right now. And they're going to have to watch a lot of stuff. So, you know, it's a weird time where you're like, boy, there is an appetite for content. And I'm, it'll be interesting to see what happens with how content will be made. I mean, I feel weirdly like animation is, is of the some of the better stuff to make at a moment like this because you don't it doesn't require a ton of people gathering in one place mm-hmm. all day long to make something um and you know there there are themes that are going to be interesting to explore in this and like it does i don't know does it feel to you like there's this is like a before like we're going to have a little world that's before this and the world after this or no? It feels like there's potential for that, for sure. What is interesting is when you, and especially in this world we live in, when you take all these creatives and you separate them from their world. So now these creative brains are going to be, you know, quarantined, so to speak, in their houses or working from home. And what is that going to create? Where is that going to go if you're not going on stage every night? 
or performing or doing your thing yeah. uh, or going to the set and, and obviously acting and creating yeah, your movies. Yeah, just living amongst people. Like, I'm curious about that, obviously, as, a, as an artist, but I'm also just, like, I'm curious about, like, what this is going to do to how we interact inside of the world. Like, the world already feels more isolated. We all feel more isolated from each other, like, staying home on our phones and our computers and our houses or apartments or whatever. And, like, what is this going to do to how we live as communities? And, like, what will... Obviously, there are these well-established now virtual communities that we exist in, but like human-to-human interaction that I am most – that's what's bumming me out more than anything is like we have to be respectful right now as it's becoming obviously day-to-day more and more real how much like we need to physically be separated from one another in large groups and stuff to to try to keep this thing – keep a – a lid on it, but but I, I hope that my hope is that this doesn't have a long term effect on like our ability to interact as human beings, and also that like living in a globalized world, which like I think is such a beautiful element to the world that we can travel and have access to other countries and people and experiences. That I hope it doesn't like tamper what I think is a really beautiful element of like people sharing their lives and worlds with each other in person around the globe. Mm-hmm. We've got enough social distancing, though. We're good. We're, I made sure we, we have our We've leg. got our six, yeah. five feet of distance. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, um, I love talking to you. I, so I was, you can come back if we, we can, when everything shuts revisit, down. <laughs> let's revisit it and see where we're at. Please yeah, come we'll back. Do a, we'll and, do a round two and, and see where we're at as a as people and 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 where humanity yeah. finds itself. I can tell you the Netflix lobby is a lot more desolate than yeah. it is when I ran into you like six months ago. The Netflix lobby was when we would run into each other there. It's, it was packed to the gills and now it's probably not. What's crazy though is people are home watching Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to figure it out. Yeah, you are. But you're well on your way. You too. Um, thank you so much for coming Thanks by. for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.